Good morning, church. Would you please take your copy of God's Word and be turning again to the Gospel of Luke. Today we begin chapter 5 in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And we'll be looking at the first 11 verses this morning. And as I read now the passage over you as I do each week, please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him, that is Jesus, and listening to the word of God, he was standing at the edge of the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. And the fishermen, having got out of them, were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we labored all night and caught nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help. And they came and filled the boat, and they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken, and James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, were also likewise amazed. Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as we do each week, I'll ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we, each of us individually and corporately as a church, look forward to this season every year. The Advent season is so full of mystery and wonder and also this theme of waiting, waiting on Christ. And since just perhaps a few days after the world was created and man fell into sin, all of your image bearers have always been waiting they were waiting up to the cross for Christ to come, Emmanuel, God with us. And now we wait for his second advent, for him to come again and judge the living and the dead. But this morning we need his nourishment. We need food from the word of God for our souls. We need to see Christ and exalt him to see where we do not match what standard he has set for us, repent of it, and then go forward empowered from this place for ministry to help build his kingdom. So would you please do that now, even in this time and what is to follow, for the glory of King Jesus and for the furtherance of his gospel in this world. Amen. Well, in Luke's gospel, the scope of Jesus' earthly ministry can be compared to 
The most glorious of sunrises. This happens each day, you know, this gradual growing light. Those of you who are up early are familiar with a world that is covered in darkness. And then you'll notice just over the horizon a warm glow. Jesus first pierced the black of the night of this world with his revelation to the synagogue of Nazareth that he is in fact the suffering servant Isaiah told about. Similar to the awe created by an amber-saturated dawn, Jesus' words captivated audiences all over Galilee, for he spoke as no other man, one who had real command of the text of Scripture. And the light grew, and the shadows began their retreat when Jesus used only his words to command a demon to come out of a man. Just words, but the night had no defense. Even the shades responsible for sickness proved no match for his glow when he healed Peter's sick mother-in-law. And then his radiance seemed to reach a whole nother level as masses of sick Galileans were healed with his simple touch. And even more demons were on the run and more people were liberated from what had been up to that point an unescapable twilight It said in the book of Job, chapter 11, the world washed in sunshine, every shadow dispersed by dawn. In moving to chapter 5 this morning, the luminosity of this Son of God continues to grow. And today what we're going to see is Jesus again sticking with the main thing, and then a new element, Jesus' powerful Knowledge is added to Luke's themes. And finally, Jesus, we'll see, gives his benevolent call to repenters. Well, first off, in verses 1 through 3, this morning, we're going to look at a portion of text that functions as a short transition summary to get us to what's been called in church history the miraculous draft of fishes. I'll start with verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing at the edge of the lake of Gennesaret. Jesus has at this point made his way from a secluded retreat near Capernaum where he sought a private audience to commune with his father. You'll remember we finished the text there last week. But, of course, he's been followed by a growing number of of admirers and people wanting to listen to his teaching. And his ministry to them eventually landed him at this lake. The text calls it Gennesaret. It's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. In the Old Testament, the name was Kinnereth, or some pronounced it Chinnereth, perhaps depending on whether or not you say Sibboleth or Shibboleth. There's some people who've read their Bible in here. Good. All right. Luke, again, wants us to see that the captivating element of Jesus' ministry is his words, his teaching, his proclamation of the kingdom. It says in the text that the crowd was pressing around him and listening to, in the Greek, ton logon tau theou, which means the word of God from the legacy standard Bible. 
Now, my understanding of Greek is limited, but here the Greek points to the source of the word. There's an emphasis on its source, and this is a frequent Lucan construction. So it could be translated something like the word from God, or the Christian Standard Bible translates it God's word. The the crowd wanted to hear God's word, which was coming from who? Well, from God, of course. This gives Jesus his unrivaled authority and helps us to understand where he gets his power from. It connects him directly to the Father. And it shouldn't surprise us then that this huge crowd forms to the point that Jesus didn't even have enough room for ministry. They were pressing right up on him, the text says. He couldn't even turn around. Strange that nobody in that day thought to enact a six-feet social distancing law to help out our Lord. He who from eternity past had been omnipresent was out of space. The crowd was pressing around him, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. And the fishermen, having gotten out of them, were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. And asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the crowds from the boat. Our Lord got into a boat. As you see in the text, it's Simon Peter's boat specifically. This would have been a wide, flat-bottomed vessel, which were common in those days, particularly on the Sea of Galilee, for this kind of fishing that they did. I'll get to that in just a minute. Approximately 30 feet long, This boat would have held a number of laborers all at the same time, plus an entire yield from a day's work. And at this moment, the other men were taking a break to, as you see, clean the nets. So Jesus requests that Peter put the boats out away from the shore. And from there, he teaches the people. He finally has room to address the people and communicate his message. I want to stop here and mention an interesting play on words in the history of the church. The word for boat in Latin is navis or novice. And you can hear the word navigate in that word, but it's also where we get the English word nave from. Any of you who are familiar with church architecture will recognize the term nave or the nave of a church. This is the main area where the congregation is seated, and and that goes right up to where the pulpit stands. Cathedrals constructed in medieval times had architecture second to none. Every part of the building had a spiritual significance, a higher level of thought put into it, beyond just personal style preferences. And one thing that stands out in most of these buildings is the breathtaking woodwork of the ceiling of the nave. If you've seen pictures of one of these, and parents, you can go online, type in wooden church nave, and you'll see what this looks like. You can show your kids. You might have had the thought, that kind of looks like the hull of a ship just turned upside down. And you would be correct. And that's 100% intentional. When these buildings were constructed, the sanctuary ceilings were often built by shipwrights, by shipbuilders, people who were in the profession of doing this for a living. And you ask why? 
Well, whatever you think of Rome's view of the Apostle Peter, he was the first in a number of ways. The early church saw here in Luke 5 one of those firsts. This was the first primitive church service. As the Lord sat and taught in Peter's novice, or his boat. Now, we're going to get to the miraculous draft of fishes in just a moment. But first, I want you to notice how Jesus just keeps going back to the same thing. He just keeps doing what Jesus was called to do. He doesn't diverge from the main thing. He's here again, as you see, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's readying the hearts of the Jewish nation for the kind of Messiah that God was really sending, not the one they had in their head, but the one revealed in the scriptures. This is what he came for. You remember back in chapter 4 that he just told the villagers at Capernaum when they found him in that secluded place, I can't stay here. I must go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. This is my main thing. This is what I'm all about. Pretty much the same statement from his royal announcement to the synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. This is what I'm about. This is my main thing. He's handed us the same commission when he left earth saying, Go into all the world and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them into the triune name and teach them to obey everything that I commanded. As you can see, the light is growing. The signs and wonders are getting more frequent. The fame in Jesus is spreading. But don't overlook the fact that this popularity never goes to his head. It never causes him to change paths. He, he can command demons. He can rebuke illnesses out of people. With all the potential good that he could do, where do we always find the Lord Jesus? He's teaching. He's preaching. He's saying, it is written in Isaiah, or Moses taught that, and giving the people instruction from the Word of God. He stays the course no matter what God manifests through him. He never diverges from this path. The question is, church, will we? Will we, as Christ the King Church, stay the course that the Lord has given to us. We are now over two years into our project of bringing reformation to the city of Clinton, Tennessee, of proclaiming the hot gospel of Jesus Christ, of informing our fellow citizens that God makes demands on their lives, whether they be in Christ or not. We've seen God answer our prayers. He's given us a free building, bring a baby with no heartbeat back to life. Heal chronic diseases, save lost souls, give success to hurting businesses, bring people in from all over the United States. We hope in the future to see closed wombs open. Our church located in the downtown area. Like-minded churches planted all across this country and into the surrounding counties. More heavily attended prayer meetings. Churches singing the Psalms again. A restoration of beautiful and biblical church liturgy. A publishing house, dissemination of our hopeful outlook on the future. In essence, we want to make disciples. We want to baptize them and we want to teach them to obey everything that Jesus 
commanded. But if you think about it, that's how all churches start out. The hopeful expectation of where they're going. Might not have the same mission or vision that we do, but they look at the Word of God and they want to see the Word of God go forth. They want to see people changed in their communities. They want to see God's Word lifted high. So why are thousands of churches capsizing every year? How did they lose their course? What caused them to forget the main thing? I could spend a long time here, but I want to give you three things to beware of, church. And these are three P's. I want you to beware of preferences. I want you to beware of prejudices. And I want you to beware of partisanship. Let me first start with preferences. We can begin drifting from the main thing that God's called us to with an inordinate emphasis on our own preferences. Now, preferences aren't bad. To give you a G-rated version of an old saying, opinions are like eyeballs. Everybody's got them. Some of you know what the real saying is. But what about when that preference becomes your priority? Church splits over the carpet color. They're silly, but we've all heard about them, right? Or over traditional or contemporary worship music during the service. I heard a story about a church in Kentucky, true story, I'm told, about a church that couldn't agree whether or not to have hat pegs when you walked in the door of the church. And it caused a total church split and the new church that broke off from the original church was named No Hat Peg Church. I'm told it's a true story. Somebody can type it in on Google, see if there's a No Hat Peg Church in Kentucky. But what if it's more serious than that stuff in our minds that seems silly? Or ask yourself the question, how does it get to that level of childlike middle school silliness? Well, it begins with people who say, I don't like the liturgy. I don't like all this high churchy stuff. Or I don't like that preaching. Or I don't like the way that it, the sermon is formulated. It goes from this to that. Or I don't like the strong words that people in this church use when they go out on the street and evangelize. Or I don't like going before the county commission. I mean, what's the church got to do with the state anyway? Or I don't like the men that were chosen to be deacons a couple of weeks ago. Or why doesn't this church have a women's ministry? You see, preferences, we've all got them. They start to rise up and eventually, left unchecked, they become that priority. James says, and I'll read from the Young's literal translation here. I think this is a great translation, this verse. Whence are the wars and fightings among you? Not thence, out of your passions that are as soldiers in your members. Where do wars come from? Well, you've got an army inside of you that you can't get rid of, and it comes out in fights. Picture that. Over your preference, which trumps a covenant that you made with everyone else sitting here in covenant fellowship with you. And that will cause our church to lose its bearings over preferences. What about prejudices? By prejudice, I mean a, a factious spirit. 
even over things as important as secondary matters. They don't agree with me on baptism. They don't agree with me on God's law. Or what about eschatology? Or the gifts of the Holy Spirit? On and on. We could give many examples. Satan keeps that one thought in your mind. They disagree with me on this or that thing. And then they become less of a Christian in your mind, like a subclass, because they're a stupid dispensationalist. Are you kidding me? Such a dumb theology. Never mind that they were bought with the same blood of Jesus that you were. Paul said, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand. The Lord's able to make him stand. That brother or sister is one day going to stand before God for what they believe and live for. But if you get campy about your theological hat trick and allow a spirit of enmity to lie alone unchecked, and by the spirit of Jesus you don't kill it for the sake of Christian unity, one day your cold heart will be the iceberg that the church hits. And you will destroy all that you and others have worked for here. Lastly, partisanship. I know I mention this one often, but I want to say it again today. If you become a devotee of men and their ministries, you will eventually make it your mission to bring that heaven, wherever that is, to Anderson County and ultimately to Christ the King. And you will abandon the main thing that we've committed to here and wreck the Christendom that we're hoping to establish. This last week, the news cycle has been on fire with the Kevin DeYoung article, which criticized Doug Wilson over his sharp rhetoric and seemingly self-promoting ministry in Moscow, Idaho. I had several of you over the course of this week, and the other elders have as well, had covenant members say, well, what are your thoughts? Tell me what you think. What do you think about his article? What do you think about this response? As of this morning, I still haven't read Kevin DeYoung's article or any of the responses. I haven't had time. But I can tell you this, before I wade into this controversy, I'm not going to pick up a man's flag. I'm not going to do it. I'll say for starters, DeYoung is a board member at the Gospel Coalition. And the Gospel Coalition is a dumpster fire so big, it makes any of Wilson's No Quarter November videos look like a tea candle. <laughs> Honesty. If DeYoung wants to take shots at another brother... Perhaps he should start by lighting up his own organization for promoting ungodly and imbecilic things like the glories of singleness, foul movies with zero Christian value but hundreds of crass words, and churches that have active women pastors on staff, including a ministry that trains women ministers at DeYoung's own church. Dear Brother DeYoung, I would say, get the log out of your own eye before you go to remove the speck from your brother's eye. On the flip side, Wilson and company have been poking the idols of our Christian culture for some time. And this has been in many helpful ways. They 
have been used by God, I think, to wake up the church to a lot of what's going on in evangelicalism today. But they have also made some wildly foolish statements in the last several years. Baptists are the cause of transgenderism is one that comes to mind. Just this last week, Gabe Wrench of the Cross Politics Show said on Twitter, How many men sit under pastors who serve them grape juice for communion? Might as well serve them a baby bottle with a nipple and milk in it. Now some of you saw that tweet. Perhaps you laughed, liked, and shared it. Yes, I have heard all the arguments for why we need a serrated edge to make fun of idols of our day. I'm also fully convinced in my own mind that wine is the only thing that we should have at the communion table. And as you can see, it's not. And that's because there are people in the church who in good conscience cannot serve or take wine from the communion table. And Jesus explicitly commanded us not to look down on them. Well, that's not what Gabe was talking about, or that's not who he was referring to. Granted, okay, you can make an argument. But if you drank so much Moscow Mojo juice that you get defensive and frustrated when I call out Moscow from the pulpit, but you kick up your feet and celebrate when I publicly shame TGC. Does that say something about your partisan leanings? Christ the King. We have explicit commands in the Scripture from our Lord against taking up a banner other than that of Jesus Christ. And... After all, the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking or carpet colors or hat pegs or music preferences or Wilson or DeYoung. It is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And he who in those ways serves Christ is pleasing to God and approved by men. The Bible then commands, let us then pursue the things which make for peace and the mutual upbuilding of one another. You can't see eye to eye, so let's pursue what makes for peace instead. Let's do that. When you plant your feet in that man's ministry or this man's article, when you make your preferences your priority, or when you let your prejudices fester in your heart, you're beginning the process of running this ship aground. How was Jesus building his kingdom? By going back again and again to preaching the word of God. Jeremy and I told Basswood Church when we left that we would avoid all three of these errors. Preferences, prejudices, partisanship. And to this we hold. We will not shrink back from declaring to you and this county the whole purpose of God. Acts 20 verse 27. Would you commit anew with us, church, to avoid all of these errors? And together let's stay the course as our Lord has showed us in this passage this morning. The next thing I want to look at with you is Jesus' powerful knowledge from verses 4 to 7. I'll read verse 4 in a way that clarifies the second person plural, which you can't really see in your English translations. And when he, that is Jesus, finished speaking, he said to Simon, you put out into the deep water and y'all let down your nets for a catch. 
everything makes more sense in the South. <laughs> now, this whole scene that we're going to get into, I love this passage this morning because it's so filled with irony. It's just saturated with it. The men here are trade fishermen. And they're being told how to fish by the son of a carpenter. And at the same time, Jesus is catching the men as his first disciples. But from a man's perspective, you can probably understand, or at least you get, why Peter's response is led with a bit of a sigh. Simon answered and said, Master, we labored all night and caught nothing. He's aiming to keep it respectful. He does at least call him master. Peter begins by saying that he's going to obey Jesus by challenging Jesus. We've been out here all night. Trust me. We know how to fish. And we're really tired right now. The word labored in the Legacy Standard Bible translation in the Greek means intense, strenuous effort. They had already worked themselves to the bone at this point. Jesus' request is strange in other ways to Peter and the other fishermen. They had been fishing at night, which is typically when fish were caught in the Sea of Galilee. You also didn't have to work in the hot sun. Yet Jesus commanded them to fish in the daytime, which was not the best time for fishing. Also, he asked them to put out into the deep water. You remember earlier when I described the boat, these are wide boats. And that's because they're meant for fishing in shallow water, which is where most of the fish are caught in the Sea of Galilee. But the Lord tells them to take those boats into the deep end. There's no question the disciples, including Peter, love Jesus and get a lot out of his teaching. But this is one of those cases where they probably wish he would just stick to his guns. Let us handle the fishing. You keep doing the teaching. You're really good at that. R.C. Sproul captures the corporate mind well in this. Quote, quoting or summarizing Peter's thoughts, he says, Jesus, when you speak to us about the things of God, we hang on your every word. But give us a little bit of credit. Maybe we're not that great at being a rabbi, but we know about fishing. We've let down the nets a hundred times. We haven't even caught a minnow at this point. And one lesson we can learn from this passage is every Christian should be resolved to the core that Jesus can be trusted in every single area of life, no matter how big or small. Peter and his co-workers had not learned that yet, but they're about to. Notice that Peter commendably does acquiesce Jesus' command. He says, Master, we labored all night and caught nothing, but at your word... Since you asked, I will let down the nets. He hasn't reached full understanding. He's not sure Jesus knows what he's talking about. And for that, he needs to repent. But nevertheless, he does obey. Being the man in charge, we get that from this portion of the text where he commands the other men to let the nets down. He provides us a beautiful example of how God works through the smallest and simplest of faiths. Think grain of a mustard seed. In this way, Jesus said he would build his kingdom through something even that small. 
The fishermen don't just see the results, they feel them. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they both began to sink. Now these are not butterfly nets. These are large, expensive, resilient, thick-woven ropes. And you can just hear in your head as they're pulling them back, they're starting to break. They're, the ones that they've just cleaned, they've just got these ready for the next catch, and these massive fishing nets are starting to buckle under. And so they call for backup, but the backup's not good enough. Instead of all of these boats and men bringing fish out of the water, the fish are bringing both the men and the boats down into the water. It's just full of irony everywhere. It's fascinating. Let's stop and evaluate for a moment. I'll say this a particular way. What on earth did Jesus just do? Some call this a miracle of power. Jesus, having control over nature, brought the fish into the nets. Now, it is undeniable that God is sovereign over all things, and the net happened to go to the place where all of the fish were because God did move the fish to that location. But the question I'm asking is, is that what Luke is highlighting for us here? If this was a power miracle, it does lack the normal verbal command from Jesus. You might think of the calming of the sea narrative when Jesus said to the waves and the wind, peace be still. He gives a command and then nature obeys. He doesn't do that here. I think it's better to see this as a miracle of Jesus' knowledge. Peter's challenge to Jesus is directly targeting Jesus' understanding or what Peter thinks is a lack of understanding of fishing. But our Lord proves that he's got a lot more intelligence than even a seasoned fisherman about this. Additionally, when Peter sees what comes out of the water, all of these fish, his response in the next section is fear. He knows that if Jesus knows where the fish are, then Jesus knows what's in me. Jesus does, in fact, know all things. He is the fount of wisdom, the very embodiment of knowledge. He can see where all of the fish are, and he knows how many hairs are on the head of each image bearer who has ever existed or ever will exist. He knows how deep the hurt is when there's no heartbeat on the Doppler and when those clients are going to start calling your dismal startup business but haven't yet. He can tell us all what the deep state is up to right now, and he's laughing at it. He can tell us what's really in the vaccines and how many babies will be murdered this year just through birth control pills. And he can tell you how to mortify that sin that you've been fighting for years and can't break. Jesus knows. So what area of your life, church, are you not entrusting to him at this point? We can hit the big picture stuff and we all have a gut reaction to pray. There's a new pregnancy. Let's pray. This woman wants a pregnancy. Let's pray. We're running out of space here. 
Let's pray for a building. That man needs a new business. Let's pray. Those people want to move to Anderson County. Let's pray. But what about, I want to challenge you here. What about the simple things of life? What about the things in the back of our mind we think, eh, I've got that. I don't need Jesus to handle that. Think of your vocation, for example. Or the mundane routines of life where you might have just a split second where the Spirit's prompting you to pray about something so small and you think, ah, that's a waste of God's time. I'm not going to bother Him with that thing. Men, you wonder what's the point of praying for success in your business. Oh, it seems so self-serving. Or what about readiness and endurance for the day? I've got to get prepared. Lord, I need you to help me endure this day. Or what about protection against injury on the job? Or for wisdom to be ready for the difficult decisions or making bids for your business? God doesn't need to be bothered with all of that. I've done this for years. I'll be fine. I always go out. I'm a man. I can take care of myself. Sounds a lot like Peter. What about moms who can't seem to get that child to understand the math problem? Or... What about moms who are struggling to get dinner on the table when her husband asked? Or who don't know how to do basic homekeeping things like cooking, canning, sewing, cow inseminating? <laughs> Somebody's got to know how to do it. What about mothers who are struggling to keep a tidy home or can't get the kids to do their chores? Or who can't maintain a regular schedule and get groceries and do the laundry and also set aside enough time for her own devotions? Why not take that before the Lord? What about the kids who need help getting an extra 15 minutes to study for the Latin test? Or choosing when to start one writing assignment over another? Coordinating their own time as a young person? Or how to prepare for and benefit from dad's family worship? Kids, you ever thought of pray for that? Or what about how to love your brother or sister who is just so hard? Jesus knows. Jesus knows people better than they do. He knows how to fish better than fishermen. He created also the Christian home and Christian businesses and so on. So why are you putting your trust in your ability to handle the little things rather than Jesus? What need is so insignificant that our Lord would be either unwilling or unable to help you? What can you really do on your own anyway? What does Scripture say? Apart from Him, we can do nothing. I know that you can take this sort of thing too far. Second guess every step of your day. Force yourself to say, if the Lord wills, every time you schedule a lunch meeting with somebody or write a reminder on the calendar... In how many of our ways, though, we open our Bibles and we want to know how often to acknowledge the Lord? In how many of our ways are we to acknowledge Him? In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He'll make your paths straight. Seek His wisdom. Depend on Him. Even in the little things. Is it really going to cause you any trouble? This last week, 
I listened to a sermon by Cody Maples from Maynardville Fellowship. He was preaching on Abram's lack of faithfulness, particularly towards his wife, Sarai. And he made a point that I'd never thought of before. Not seeking the Lord in all your ways can actually cause you a whole lot of trouble. Genesis 12 records that there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went to Egypt. The text says nothing about him inquiring of Yahweh, whereas at other times when there was a, an issue in Abram's life, he would go before the Lord. He would seek him. You know what came of the trip to Egypt. He lies about Pharaoh, or excuse me, he lies to Pharaoh about his wife Sarai. And so she's taken as an Egyptian bride. And it's interesting, Cody makes a, a fairly convincing argument that Pharaoh actually slept with Sarai. And this resulted in Pharaoh receiving judgment from Yahweh for his sin. But look what happens to Abram. He gets loaded up with all this good stuff. He gets camels, he gets sheep and oxen and donkeys and male slaves and, and female slaves. Think about this for a minute. Who was the most famous, or perhaps we should say infamous, Egyptian female slave that Abram ever had was Hagar. And from Hagar would come Ishmael, and several thousand years thereafter of trouble for Israel. To this day, Israel and Islam, Isaac, Ishmael, are still at war with each other. Children being murdered in the Middle East right now. Yes, there was a famine in the land, and you have to go where there's food. But would it have hurt to ask God first? What area of your life are you not acknowledging God in right now, beloved? I want you to also look at the potential fruit that we're leaving out there for not asking and then obeying Him. Peter obeys, and the reward is very great indeed. You see all the fish that's hauled in. It even causes these boats with all the men in them to start sinking. And the same is true for us. If we abide in the love and teachings of Jesus, we are promised to bear much fruit, to bring in a big yield of souls or resources for the kingdom or disciple our fellow covenant members, be in community together, or bring Christian culture for Clinton, Tennessee. Ryle rightly asserts, the path of duty may sometimes be hard and disagreeable. The wisdom of the course we propose to follow may not be apparent to the world. But none of these things must move us. We are not to confer with flesh and blood. We are to go straight forward when Jesus says go. To do a thing boldly, unflinchingly, and decidedly when Jesus says do it. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. And believe that we see not now... That what we see, not now to be right and reasonable, we shall hereafter. So acting, we shall never find in the long run that we are losers. So acting, we shall find sooner or later that we reap a great reward. Christ the King, would you repent of your lack of faithfulness to take your needs, whether they be great or small, to the Christ who knows all things? Would you commit anew to placing everything in your life at the judgment seat of your King? And would you believe that Jesus delights to answer your request for knowledge when you ask? Scripture promises us he does. 
And when he answers, would you then stop, even with your children present there, and would you worship him for answering the request that you've made? Now, finally, as I close, I want to look at the last several verses, 8 through 11, and this is Jesus' benevolent call. You could say from the text this morning that at least from Peter's perspective, there's a problem with Jesus' knowledge. And we've all felt it before. Jesus' knowledge exposes us for who we really are. When Simon Peter saw this, that is that Jesus knew where the fish were, and they brought in such a great quantity, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Go away. I can tell that you're the Lord, and I know that you know I'm full of sin. Notice how he switches in verse 5 of our text this morning from calling Jesus Master to now in verse 8 calling him Lord. He changes titles. This is more than a mere polite address. The Greek word kurios is usually used as a polite address. But in Luke's usage here, going from master to Lord, something beyond that is meant. Peter is bowing in this passage before his Messiah. There's a real acknowledgement of sovereignty and authority in this moment. He hasn't come to full understanding yet. It's going to take a long time before he gets sanctified out of a lot of his bad habits. But Peter does here see clearer than he ever has who Jesus is. And at the same time, seeing who Jesus is, he sees who he is. The seeds of the gospel that Jesus had been sowing for months perhaps at this point by the power of regeneration and the gift of faith, had begun to sprout. Now, the other disciples have similar reactions. You can see that they were all likewise amazed. The whole lot of them are undone in front of the Lord, who at this point is still sitting in a boat, smiling, watching them, knowing all. And the best part of this story is that Christ, when Peter confesses, doesn't turn him away. The confessing sinner, he does not turn back. He immediately includes him in the main thing. Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. In fear, Peter says, go away. Jesus Christ responds, your fear go away, but you come with me. Isn't that beautiful? That's sin in you? That can go. But I want you. Almost as an afterthought at this point, where are all those fish that they hauled in? Peter, James, and John, who were at that moment probably at the apex of their small startup business. The Bible says, left everything. A fortune on the shore and they followed Jesus you can see from the text that they're all still fishermen but they're a totally different kind of fishermen now I want to say this morning that there's someone here who's been waiting to get their act together before they come to Jesus 
You keep telling yourself that you will know that you're ready to come to Jesus when you clean up this mess. And it's that mess that you don't want Jesus to see. But Jesus already knows about your mess. He knows that you are indeed a sinful man or a sinful woman or a sinful son or daughter or child. All the secrets that you keep from your spouse or parents or the church, the ones that if we projected them on a screen up here on a Sunday morning so that everybody could see the sin in your heart, you would run out of this church and you'd never come back. Jesus already knows about them. And Jesus is the second Adam here, the true and better one. Peter's acting more like the first Adam. When his sin is exposed, he wants to run from the only one who can cure his now incurable disease. But Jesus comes to take away that curse far as it is found. Lost person, look at verse 10. The words fear not are for you. Come to Christ, no matter how stained your heart is. Not only will Jesus not turn you away, he'll turn you into his fold and give you a job on the spot. This kingdom life that if you've been at this church for any length of time, you only live now in the glow of, you can have the full reality of it. The spirit of God living within you, the law of God written on your heart, a heart that is soft and alive and eager to walk in righteousness, and he will be your God and you will be his child. Lost person, do what Peter did here. Admit to God that you are ate up with sin and that you don't feel worthy. You need a physician, and sick people are the only ones that Christ accepts. He's never turned away one who came to him in this way. Church family, Christ the King, there's a promise here for you as well. Jesus says, fear not, you will catch men. Of course, the text says that he's speaking here to Peter. We can imagine all of the apostles thinking, now we're going to go off and we're going to harvest men. The Greek actually says literally that we're going to take them alive. We're going to take these men. We're going to bring them in. But every one of us who are today in Christ, the Bible tells us, have been made an ambassador for him. Our Lord Jesus, now seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father, is making his appeal to the lost world through us. We have today the kingdom ministry of reconciliation. So when you're making small talk with that man or woman at the grocery store or the gas pump, wondering if now's the right time, when you sit down with the extended family who are lost as Hogan's goat, and doubt rises up in your heart, should I talk now? When you go before the county commission or city council to plead for righteousness in Clinton, and there's something in the back of your head that's saying, they're too far gone, they won't hear me. And when you speak to your child for the thousandth time about the same sin that seems to have them bound up as tight as a hydraulic tension pin, and in that moment, you lose faith, you go through the routine, and both of you leave joyless. You're forgetting that the promise of God here is for you as well. Fear not, 
you shall catch men. Who among us today thinks so low of himself, which is actually thinking very highly of yourself in the wrong way, that the situation that you are in in that moment is so bad that Christ doesn't have the power to keep his promise to bring repentance and faith to the world through the preaching of his gospel. What a repulsive thought. You may not, as Peter did, see thousands come to faith. Perhaps you will see very few in your lifetime. Even if you never see one conversion happen in front of you, let the dawn of hope in Christ's knowledge and power and authority to save rise in your heart this morning, beloved, as it has in these opening passages of Luke. Fear not, church. You shall catch men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and how it teaches and instructs us in righteousness, how it helps us. Would you please give us courage to go forward this morning and be obedient to you in whatever you've commanded during this time. If there is a lost one here, may they come to you immediately, confessing their sin, professing you to be the Christ who saves. We will welcome them into the kingdom. And for those of us here who doubt and fear and struggle to preach and teach and proclaim the good news of your kingdom, would you remind us that you have promised us with your gospel, your word does not return void. It always accomplishes what you want it to. Help us not to fear, but know that we will harvest a great number of people for the kingdom if we're faithful to you together. Lord, looking to you, we know that we can do this. And so we look to you again for help and strength. We ask you to bless the rest of our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen.